guys can have a seat. I want to welcome people. You guys have been live streaming. The live stream audience has been growing and growing. And so thank you if you're live streaming. We're starting to get people to check in online and to email us. And we've even had people that live stream or uh, when they get our first-time guest email or second-time guest email, they're filling out the surveys and letting us know what's going on. And so we're really glad to have people. If you'd like a main idea today, this is in the app. Again, everything we put up on the screen will be in your app, so you don't have to frantically write it down if you don't want to. Here's the main idea for today. Trust in God, not in man. We all struggle to trust in God and not in a human ability. God promises faithfulness and blessing to those, now I'm going to talk about individually and nationally, who trust in him alone. As soon as we make the leap to nationally, again, we don't change the fact that we're speaking to us, not them, okay? All right, super important, and I just saw, just, I mean, I just, I love the Cowboys hat in the front row, all right, it's the fourth, like, most important Sunday of the year, it's the launch of the Cowboys season, so, I mean, it's, it's really good, so thanks. All right, <laughs> trust in God, not in man. We are all prone to this, right? We are prone to trusting in the things we can see and we can touch. We're prone to the things that we can control, believing, I have a job, I have an income, that's my security. I have an education, I have a family, I have a this, I have a, these are the things that I rely on. I have medical insurance, I'm going to rely on that for my health. Missing that none of that matters if we miss God. That's where the people are today. The setting is this, Assyria is closing in on Judah, closing in on Israel too, but these words are written specifically to Judah. And the, the nation itself has now got a king named Hezekiah, and he's a godly man. He's a good guy. He is trying to lead the nation back to God. He is fighting pretty much the entire nation. Imagine Billy Graham became president. I mean, that's really kind of what we're thinking. And yet the entire system is teed up to fight against that. I know Billy Graham's dead. I get it. But you get my point, right? The whole system there around him is saying, listen, we must align with Egypt to overcome Assyria. Hezekiah is saying, listen, Assyria is irrelevant. It's God that's coming after us. He's using Assyria. It's not about Assyria. Egypt can't overcome God. So that's the, that's the battle. So Isaiah is now speaking to the people. So he says this, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt and help, for help, and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. As we've said in several chapters, this is like the... Sixth or seventh in a row passage, many of them are the beginning of the chapters, that has begun with a woe, right? And doesn't really have the same kind of effect in English, but in this setting, a woe, like a curse, is a great sorrow or distress that is coming your way. Woe to you, Judah, right? Woe to you who go to Egypt for strength, you go there because they're many. You trust in their horses because they're strong. Woe to you because you're not seeking God. So the challenge for Judah and Hezekiah is to trust in God over Egypt. So for Hezekiah, I think at this moment in history, I think Hezekiah wants to follow God, <clears throat> wants to follow God, excuse me. 
But then all his counselors around him are saying, no, we must align with Egypt in order to overcome the Assyrian army who's already at our borders, who's already waged some little battles against us, who are already taking over in Israel. In order to do that, we must align with Egypt. Now, you could take this and in our national culture, we could look at foreign enemies, we could look at whether it be uh, economic struggles, and you could talk about China or Russia or uh, Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran. Or so you could look at all this geopolitically. But more important is the essence inside. Where is it that we rely on human might, power, ability, strength, things we can see, touch, taste? We might even then, if we can do that, we might be able to ask ourselves, where do we rely on our own government and strength? Is that fair? Where do we think, no, we're America, that'll never happen. And we're relying on our strength rather than God. Right, there's lots of things that go around on social media. Oh, that, you know, there's laws being passed so that preachers of the word can't say certain things and, and Normally, our trust is, no, you know, we're in America. We have freedom of speech. Or we're in America. This is a protected right. Our trust is not in, okay, God is going to save our church. So we're doing the same thing even if we're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in human things more than God. Verse 2. And yet he, meaning God, is wise and brings disaster he does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will perish together. Egypt is human. Their horses are flesh. When God stretches out his hand... Be it by himself or using Assyria, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And then if God stretches out his hand to defend you, there's no enemy that can prevail. That's, this is the message of Isaiah to the people. And the people are struggling in an area where we struggle. They're, they're leaning into human things, not into God. They're trusting in the things they have, the things they believe they have, the relationships they make, the wealth they have, the health they have, or whatever. They're not trusting in God. They're not turning to God. In fact, they're ignoring God. As God has repeated himself. So judgment is coming and is at the door for them. But God's been saying for generation after generation after generation, he's been calling them to repent. He's been calling them to turn away from things to turn away from false idols and return to God, turn away from trusting in power or might and return to God. But generation after generation after generation is ignoring him. He has sent many prophets, Isaiah is just this one. They've killed some of the prophets, they've ignored the rest. So God is saying, listen, we're at the door right now to destroy you, you still have a chance. See, there's a common maybe cultural kind of question, well, how could a good God do this? How could a good God send people to hell? How could a good God let his nation perish? How could a good God let you know, a storm attack the East Coast? How could a good God do this? You have to zoom out a little bit and say, but this good God has been calling his people back for hundreds of years. 
God has been abundantly patient. God has been abundantly clear. Isaiah is just the next in a long line of people saying, God's asking you, calling you, begging with you, pleading with you, loving you to return. And still, you cover your ears, you stiffen your neck, you close your eyes. So here it is. And up to the last minute, Isaiah is giving people an opportunity to respond. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down and fight on Mount Zion on its hill. If a lion is coming, and you're a shepherd and you have sheep, and a lion is hungry and he's coming for your sheep, what he's saying is the lion's not scared of your shepherd. Right Now shepherds did need to learn how to defend their flocks and do things, so the, the example eventually falls down on itself. But the point is this, God's not afraid of you. God's not afraid of Egypt either. In fact, God doesn't need Assyria, he's using Assyria to make a point. He's using a, an ungodly and a pagan people to discipline you because you won't listen to God. But when you try and say, oh, we're gonna align with Egypt, God's the lion, they're the little shepherd, saying, I'm not worried about your human response. Verse 5, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Say, listen, your out is this, return to God. You want safety, you want health, you want, you want God to come in and cover you, return to God. Abandon Egypt, abandon your own efforts. Return to God. Verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver or idols of gold, for which your hands have sinfully made for you. So God calls them to repent. So their, their history is this. If you fast, if you, if you reverse, if you uh, rewind all the way back to King David or Solomon, the kingdoms were at their height of power and strength and might and wealth and influence. They were the most prominent nation on the planet, an empire unto themselves. And they were obedient to God, human, flawed, failed, sinful, including David and Solomon, right? But they continued to return to God. It wasn't that everything was corrupted and everything was wrong. But after that, after Solomon, starting with the next generation, so many other worship practices and so many other systems and so much complacency had bred themselves into Israel that they began to wander away from God, eventually splitting into two nations who were both disobedient to God. And so here they are saying, listen, there, there are people in here that worship other things, worship created things, things made with hands. And again, we, we look back at this sometimes and we're like, well, how, how does someone take something like a piece of wood and carve into it and make an idol out and then bow down to the very thing they made? Seems crazy, right? Don't we worship money, power, sex, influence, you name it. Like, don't we worship things that are created? And aren't our worship practices just as wrong and just as dumb? So we're not exempt from this. We do it too. 
We just love to look with two, 3,000 years of lens of history back at this and say, well, that's kind of crazy. But we do it too. He's saying, listen, the, the call here is repentance. Everyone needs to repent. If repentance is an unfamiliar word to you, it's, it's really, a, it's an old military term that when you're losing a battle and you're fighting this way, you would turn and you would run for your life. And, and that's the image we need of repentance, that we're, we're sinning, we're going against God, we're going the wrong way and we're losing. We're all losing if we're going against God, but we're losing and we're going to turn and we're going to run towards the open arms of God. That's repentance. It's not a work. It's not an effort. It's a turning to a God who loves you. Now, I want, I want to use this. I want to kind of tee up. So on September 15th, as we said, we're going to start the Essential Series. We're going to do that at night on Sunday nights. We're going to work through. We're really going to answer two big questions. What does the gospel say or what does the gospel tell us? And then what does it call us to do in response? We're going to work through gospel proclamations in the New Testament and teachings in the New Testament church. We're going to go back and ask the questions before the Bible was canonized, the New Testament was put together in the fourth century, like for those 300 years prior to that, how did they teach the church? What did they teach the church? And so here's, here would be a great starting point for that. Here's Acts 2. Peter has been proclaiming the gospel and the people say, now, Okay, we hear you about Jesus and his gospel message, by the way, is not, if you say this prayer, you'll go to heaven. It's Jesus is alive. In fact, he goes so bold as to say, you know the Jesus you crucified and killed? He's alive. God raised him from the dead. And now people are responding, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. We'll call this, theologically, we'll call this, is this normative? Is this for everyone? Yes. Everyone. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. So is the promise. You'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll be given the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will live in you. I was asked people as we're going through passages of Scripture when Jesus is like, it's better that I go away. It's better for you. Well, what's better than Jesus being right here with us? Jesus living inside of us, right? His spirit in us. And so these are the kind of passages we're going to unpack. But God is saying the same thing almost 3,000 years ago, roughly 2,700 years ago. He's saying repentance is what you need. And so I don't care who you are or how you live sitting here. We all need repentance. There's all, there's areas of our life that are not fully given over to God. We all need repentance. The response is the same. Turn from your sin, run towards God. Turn, run to a loving Father who desires you to return. Verse 8, here's the outcome of this. And the Assyrian army shall fall by a sword, not of man, and the sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord whose fire in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Repent, and here's what happens, God says, and I'll chase off the Assyrians. You just leave Egypt alone, I got this. Return to me, and I'll just send them away with a sword not made by hands, and with a sword not made by hands, I'll wipe them all out. That's all you gotta do, return to me. 
You're fighting something in your life, or you're fighting against a sin in your life, or you're fighting, fighting a, a tough marriage, or the tough challenge of raising children, or a tough battle, or anything in your life, an addiction, anything else. The answer is turn to God. Let God fight the battle. Let God fight with a sword not made with hands. Let God fight the battle you can't fight. The battle you're struggling with and losing, God's got this. It's always a return to God. Isaiah 32, verse 1 says this, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. You see, I haven't, te- I haven't taught, I haven't, I haven't preached in four weeks. So we're doing two chapters today, right? Like I said, no lunch plans, no, we're fasting or something, right? <laughs> so Isaiah 31, return, quit trusting in human things. Now What? If you do this, this is what I'll do. Let, let, me, let me unpack this a little more, God says. Let me show you a little more. So remember, King Hezekiah has ascended to the throne. So he is leading now. And he is attempting to get his nation to return to God. Now listen, I don't think there is any parallel. And I'll probably say this later too. I don't think Republican or Democrat, we have a good solution right now. Okay. I remember voting in the last presidential election, and I chose the least of the two people I hated the least, right? I think there's a whole bunch of double negatives in there somewhere. You get my point, right? Right? And I know that the conservative right has tried to co-opt Trump and say, oh, really, he's, he's come to the Lord. He's done this. Listen, I don't buy the hype. And I don't buy the hype on the other side that he's the Antichrist. So I just, I don't. And I've been listening to the Democratic candidates and the things that they're saying, and none of them are talking about God. If there's one who mentioned God, and he's married to a mother, another man, and he's saying the greatest sin right now that God is offended with is carbon emissions. You can believe in carbon emissions. I'm just not sure that's the greatest sin we've got. So I think our choices are limited, right? And I'm not picking on a specific party. I'm saying they're both jacked. Okay, I go to the ballot box and go, who do I hate least? I literally, right? And it's hard being in California because you're like, yeah, the whole electoral college is going this way and I'm not. What do I do, right? It's hard. This is where we live. This is not unlike that. This is a godly leader who's fighting a system. I don't even believe, and I'll just be honest with you, I don't even believe a godly leader can make it in today's politics. I have some people out there trying to tell the truth. Nobody's even listening. We caused that, just for the record. We bought into that. Our social media posts fuel that. It's us, not them. It's us. Here's what he says. Behold a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. The the tendency of the modern American church is to fast forward all the way to King Jesus on the throne in eternity. And that's, in this case, not what Isaiah is saying. He's saying here and now, there will be a king that's righteous and he'll have some princes that are just. What do we do? How can we see or what can we expect from a godly leader? Yes, this gives us a foretaste of Jesus to come. In fact, I wrote it down like this. Can I have the next slide? Isaiah's point is not Jesus reigning fully on earth today, 
but rather a foretaste of eternity in Christ. When godly people lead, we experience moments of peace and justice that will be fulfilled when Christ returns and reigns in power. Isaiah, much of Isaiah, is given over to proclaiming Jesus to come. This is not that moment. This is, here's what happens when we have godly people in power. You get a foretaste of Jesus' reign eternally. Is Jesus fully king of kings and lord of lords today? It wasn't a trick question. Yes. Okay, good. But we're not trying to make this his kingdom. Fair? Yes, his kingdom is here. Jesus said when he was alive, before he went to the cross, before he was resurrected, before he ascended, my ki- the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like I'm here now. But of course it's not the way it will be. Of course it's not fully fixed, right? So our tendency is either to overinvest here and try and make this heaven on earth or disconnect from this completely and just wait for eternity. Isaiah is saying there's something else. God is saying there's something else. When we have godly leadership, no, it won't be perfect, but we will experience peace and justice here on earth. So here's what he says. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Verse two, each, meaning each godly leader, will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land right? This has a message somewhat like last Sunday in Jonah, right? Pastor Scott was here. He taught about Jonah. He's preached this uh, really not so heartfelt gospel to Nineveh, right? Eight words, eight words. And I'm sure he went in there like, God said, do this. And then like left and they all repented, right? Like he's not in it. So he goes up on a hill and he's pouting, And God causes this this weed or this plant to grow over him and give him shade out in the hot sun. And Jonah gets all happy. Like, I got shade right now. This is good. Then God causes it to die. Jonah's mad again. It's better that I die, Jonah says. And God says, now you care more about this shade that you did nothing to create. And I care about the 120,000 people that are repenting down the hill. You see, when godly leadership comes in, we get glimpses of what eternity will be like. When the the leader of Nineveh, who was not a godly leader, but repented, turned from his ungodliness, went to an open and willing God, God began to show favor and 120,000 people repented. Godly leader causes godly outcomes. That's what God is teaching, is teaching the people. You have Hezekiah, it's a good start, but everybody's fighting against him. When we have godly leadership, be that in a school board or a church or a presidency or, or whatever, you get foretastes of eternity. You get glimpses of justice and redemption and peace. I want to read this again. It'll be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. See, the world around us is still going to be windy and stormy, but godly leadership provides a small amount of shelter in the meantime. Again, here's the warning. We're not trying to build a utopia. 
Can we put that up? Thank you. Building heaven on earth is not our goal. Rather, as we draw near to Jesus in this life, we experience moments of peace and joy as we await his kingdom. We're not trying to fix this and make this the permanent answer, right? This is going to go away. We're trying to be godly people. We're trying to pray for godly leaders. We're trying to see godly people lead us so that we can experience moments of grace until we get to Jesus' eternal reign. The risks again. We can think this is everything. This is what's important. And we dive into this. And we just build up more houses. And we build up more jobs. And we build up more bands. We just do. And we're so invested here. And then to make ourselves feel better, we try and deal with justice and equality and other things here. We need to be pressing into Jesus. Let godly leader, let, the, let that be the outcome of people that are committed to Jesus. Verse 3. Then... So when this is taking place, godly leadership, repentance, then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention to the heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. There's a, a promise of comfort and healing and redemption. See, the gospel is a promise of comfort, healing, and redemption. When, when God created us and designed us and set us on our trajectory in human history, in love and in relationship, he says, here's how you're to live. Live following me, and it'll be good. But our ancestors, eons ago, decided, nope, you know what? I'm going to try my own way. And they severed that relationship between us and God. And, and here, you, again, the image of repentance, they're like, nope. I know you created me, but I know better. And we go this way. And when this way becomes so painful, it causes us to return. And so repentance is in returning. But God said, listen, uh, you broke the relationship. I, I don't have to pursue you. I don't have to chase you down. I don't have to fix the thing. I, I told you what to do and you didn't do it. But I love you too much to let you to let you die in your sins, to let you live in your sins. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up off my throne. I'm going to put flesh on. I'm going to enter into human history. Jesus Christ entered into human history. God eternal put on flesh. And he lived the life we are called to live. And then he died the death and paid the penalty we deserve. And he did it in our place that our sins could be paid for. That if we would submit to him, that we would repent and be baptized in his name. That our sins would be removed and his spirit would be put in us. That, that's super important. The Holy Spirit in us does what? It begins to heal and redeem and fix us. It begins to heal the wounds and overcome the sins and do the things. As long as we continue focused on God, the spirit in us does those things. The gospel is this. It's, a, it's an overcoming, healing, redeeming power. It's not just a faith that results in something in eternity. Yes, it does that. But it's the thing that starts to work today that draws us back in whatever keeps us apart. The penalty of the sins we've committed or the penalty of sins committed against us. The gospel begins to heal and redeem. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 11. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. He says, go, go tell what you see. 
That people who follow me, I'm rebuilding them, I'm putting them back together, I'm healing them, I'm redeeming them. It's for us too. That wherever we are, that whatever it is we struggle with, whatever the outcomes of our decisions, that God wants to walk with us and strengthen us and be with us in them. Our job, quit running away, start running too. Our job is run to a God who desires us. Our job, submit to the Spirit in us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, look at the promise of the Holy Spirit for you. Let that Spirit, let it, let it work. Get out of the way is more our job. Verse 5, the fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. When godliness and leadership begins to take root, when, 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 the, when the tide starts to turn, here, Judah, doesn't matter where. Nineveh as a great example. When godly leadership starts to take root and things start to change, here's what happens. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. And I'm just going to leave this out there loosely. Pick your politician. Right? All the ones that are telling you how immoral you are for whatever it is you do or don't do, they'll no longer be considered noble because they're foolish. And the scoundrels, the ones that are lying and cheating and doing their thing, they, they won't be considered right. Godly reader, leadership will reveal the sins of the people trying to mislead us. Again, this will never be the utopia. This will never be the perfect outcome. This will never be perfectly right until Jesus reigns, until Jesus remakes us, remakes this earth when he comes back. But, but until then, we get a foretaste of what Jesus is going to do. We get a glimpse into eternity when we press into Jesus. When our leadership goes there, we begin to see it in our nation. And again, so we have to start here, not there. Must begin with us. It must begin with us repenting, us returning, us valuing things different, us doing things differently. In order for everything else to change, it has to start with us. This is a call to God's people. Verse 6, for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil, his plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words. Even when the plea of the needy is right, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Nobility is not separated from godliness. It's used almost as synonyms here, or as things that work together. Godliness produces nobility. Same thing on the converse. Foolishness is tied to sin here. Not just stupidity, but sin. Not just ignorance, but sin. Godliness produces nobility. Sin produces, produces foolishness. Now the passage is going to shift here. I want to explain this to you. Verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. Finally, men, right? God's been yelling at us for books and books and books, right? So, so there's about normally two reasons that you're like some of the women are laughing like. 
Remember, dude, I get my wife to um, get my husband to come to church. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I know. There's two reasons the Bible tends to pivot towards women. One is that women are uniquely engaged or responsible for a specific sin, if that is the case. The other is when men will not rise up and lead. Okay? We don't know in this case which one it is. So we're going to do this. We're going to aim at women for a minute and jump back into everybody. Okay? I don't know if the men are just unwilling to lead. I believe I can make a case for that. I also don't know if the women are uniquely engaged in this sin. That's also possible. Let me give you a modern day example. When you see someone out there protesting, picketing, whatever you want to do, protesting either for or against abortion, who do you primarily see? Women. A lot of men in here, super passionate about that. A lot of us deeply believe in protecting unborn life. Deeply believe in that. But who do you mostly see championing pro-abortion? They call it pro-choice, but really, it's pro-abortion. Who do you see championing pro-life? It's women, right? That's the vast majority of people. So in that case, this passage might be targeted at women. Now, that's not what this is about. So you can see how that could be, or you can see how even in that case, really, where are the men in that conversation? Right? I don't mean the candidates that are willing to stand up there and say any stupid thing that will get them a vote from a woman. I mean, where are the men leading? They're absent in this conversation a lot, right? I don't mean from Facebook where you can say anything you want to with no repercussion. I mean, where is the leadership? We don't know in this case. It's talking about women of ease, Women who have means. So women who have homes, who have plenty. That's who this is directed at. And it's going to be directly related to the poor, which has been a theme throughout Isaiah. And we just heard that the nobility or the people just below the king aren't caring for the poor. So you can make both cases, right? Women tend to be the more generous and the more giving and caring of people in need. Maybe they're not. Or the men, who have already noted, aren't doing it. So you pick your path, doesn't matter, we can all learn from this. So here's what he says. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, verse 10, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. God calls complacent women to take action. So you take that how you want to. You figure that out. Is that because the men around you are not leading? Or are you uniquely engaged in this issue? And then men, we need to hear this. And let me tell you why we need to hear this. I want to define complacency for you. God calls out complacency repeatedly through Isaiah. Complacency is not just laziness, it's inaction rooted in trusting the security of human strength or ability. In this passage, Judah is complacent because they trust in Egyptian power. Where do we find ourselves in this complacency? Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's not in regard to the poor. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not in trusting another army. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not in whatever it is. Complacency, as Isaiah writes it, is rooted in us not seeking God, being complacent in our faith because we trust in what we can see, touch, taste, or have what we think we can control. 
Verse 11, tremble you women who are at ease. So again, I'm back to men and women at this point. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. See how I went back to both genders? Just made myself safe here, right? All right, good. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields and the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. So they're talking about being generous and, and caring for those who are in need. But here's the big picture. Here's the, here's the meta-narrative that Isaiah is giving us. Be about kingdom work, not just about what you want. Men, women alike. Be about what Jesus is doing in the world, not just about you building your little kingdom. We can all hear that. Verse 14, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. In other words, vast and empty. A joy of wild donkey, a pasture of flocks. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. There's two images. There's the first one, our broken human life. It says things like the palace is forsaken the populous city is deserted, right? The riches and wealth that were there, it's empty. The ripe ground, the big harvest, it's a desert. There's another vision of what God can do. It says, until the spirit is poured upon us from high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. This is God returning to what was, returning to how things were supposed to be. In fact, we look at the gospel narrative, it's not a line from creation to eternity. It's a circle from creation to fall to redemption back to recreation, how God made us to be. That's what he's saying. Listen, you continue in sin, I'm gonna strip you of your wealth and your power, I'm gonna make your palace empty. I'm going to take your fields where you grow, what you eat, what you sell, what you do, and I'm going to wipe it out and make it a desert until the Spirit falls upon you. And then I will restore everything back to you. God's saying, listen, I will go as far as it takes to discipline you and judge you, to cause you to return to me. I will take everything away if that's what will get you back to my arms. Then I'll pour out the spirit on you and I'll begin to give it back to you. When I got out of prison, most of you know my story. If that's shock to you, it shouldn't be, look at me, right? So, <laughs> drug addiction for many, many years, right? Gangs, drugs, prison. I got out in 90, I gotta think, 98. And I remember getting out being almost 30 years old, marrying my high school sweetheart who I'd known for almost 20 years. And thinking to myself, I've thrown away my entire life. You know, young people, when you hit 30, you're just going to feel old. Let me tell you, that goes away, by the way. All right? <laughs> 50 feels old. I'm just saying. All right? God gave me that verse out of Joel 2 where he says, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Look at my life today. Does it seem like I spent the 90s locked up? No. You can't even tell. It's just a part of the story in the tattoos. It's just a part of things. But it doesn't define my life today. Until I pour out the Spirit upon you, and I begin to restore everything to you, and God has proved he can restore time and time again. Verse 16, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and the righteous abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. 
And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Isaiah closes with a preferable future. What it looks like when you lay down your sin and you return to God. What it looks like when he pours out his spirit on humanity and starts to make things right. So what do we do? What do we, as followers of Jesus, do today? We've been given the warning, don't make it about today, make it about the kingdom. But what do we do? We've been, we've been told if we have godly leaders, but if we're just honest, that's not what we have. And I don't care which side of the aisle you sit on or your ideology, it's not, it's, be honest. We're not picking from a great litter of options, right? Either side. What do we do? I want to finish with three things and give you three verses that go with them. They're all in your app. You don't have to scribble these down. I can get them to you. I'll send you my notes if you don't have the app. First one, trust in God. Trust in God. Do not trust in man or human ability. The plague of the American church is complacency. We trust what we can see or touch more than we trust God. True statement? True statement. Here's what David, one of the most pronounced leaders on the planet, wrote. Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. By the way, that's a guy who had more chariots and horses than most will ever see. He knew better to trust in that, that he trusts in God. Second thing, pray for our leaders. I'm not going to out Marsha, but I'm going to say that we have someone in our church who repeatedly posts prayer requests to pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for our church leaders, right? So without giving up Marsha, I'm just going to say I'm challenged each week <laughs> to pray for Trump and to pray for Gavin Newsom. Yeah, you feeling my pain, right? Like you're like, oh, f yeah, you, doesn't matter which side you sit on. I'm jacked. I got to pray for them both, right? Second Timothy, or First Timothy, Paul says this, first of all, then, First, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Pray for your leadership. Pray for me as a pastor. Pray for our elders who lead this church. Pray for us. Pray for the city we're in or the city you live in. Pray for parents raising children. Pray for our president, our governor, our senate. Our pray for them all. And I've, I've listed enough things where you dislike many of what I just said. Pray. We want godly leaders, but we have who we have. Pray. You want a better pastor? Pray for me. Third, focus on kingdom work. Jesus has called us to live focused on the work of his kingdom. When we focus on the kingdom, we experience Jesus on earth. When we focus on this life, we miss the kingdom and the blessing of Jesus today. Focus on the kingdom work. Focus on what Jesus has called us to do, and we will experience the best of this life. Focus on this life, we'll miss everything. Matthew says this, Jesus says this in Matthew, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Generations Church, we are way, way too invested in the things that we can see, touch, taste, 
try and control the things we have. We are no different than Israel, Judah, or the people that don't profess to believe in Jesus in that sense. We believe we can control it. We seek God when we screw it up. Seek God first. Right? Generations Church, I love you. This is a place we all struggle. This is a place where the American church struggles. And this isn't about everybody else. This is about you and I. That we would get right with Jesus. That we would repent and return. That we would begin to be a prayerful people. That we would begin to value different things. And that we would begin to live different ways. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Without you, we might as well just fold it up and go home. If you're still in the grave, Jesus, we're wasting our time. But because you lived and died and rose again, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you can fix this. You have given us your spirit. Help us to live like that. You have forgiven our sins. You've empowered us to be made new. Our job is to relentlessly run towards you. Whenever we find ourselves running away, to repent and to return, knowing you're a good and loving Savior. That you gave your life for us. You desire to forgive us. You desire to redeem and heal and transform us. Jesus, let us, let us just fall more and more in love with you, that we can experience your love here on earth in this broken place, and that others may see you through us. Let us be bold as we transform our lives to invite others that don't know you to see you. That is the work of the kingdom, Jesus. We want to join you in your mission. It's in your name we pray. Amen.